Michigan's Children proudly presents Speaking for Kids, the podcast where we explore crucial conversations impacting the lives of all Michigan children, youth, and families, especially the most vulnerable. Join us each month as we explore public policies and issues in the best interest of our kids and families. We'll bring you lawmakers and policymakers, advocates fighting for change, and the people most affected by those decisions. With our host, Matt Gillard, President and CEO of Michigan's Children, we'll invite you to become engaged too and show you how to take action on what matters most to you. Episodes are recorded live and shared virtually on YouTube and the audio hosting sites, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's Children. Today, we are joined by three special guests to discuss glaring problems that came to light in the Wayne County Youth Detention System this fall. In a series of investigative reports by the Detroit Free Press, the paper exposed problems with the way youths were detained, often for prolonged periods of time and in the most inhumane conditions inside Wayne County's juvenile detention facility this past year. What does it say about the way we, re- we rehabilitate or, or frankly don't rehabilitate youthful offenders and the need for reforms in that system? What should be done to put youth offenders on the road to rehabilitation for society's benefit in their own? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm your host, Matt Geller, the president and CEO of Michigan's Children, and we're recording this episode on November 18th, 2022. Joining us today is investigative reporter Christine McDonald, who, along with co-writer Gina Kaufman, exposed serious failings and licensing violations in the county's detention facility. In the wake of the investigation, Governor Whitmer announced the creation of the Michigan Juvenile Residential Facilities Advisory Committee to help address these problems. Also with us today is parent Dinah Campbell, whose son, now 18, spent seven months at the Wayne County Detention Facility. And rounding out our panel is Rusty Merchant, a lobbyist who works with the Michigan System for Youth Justice, and they're committed to promoting strategies that remedy issues like these. It's good to have you all here today, Christine, Dinah, and Rusty. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, Christine, why don't we start with you? Uh, tell us what put the free press or you and Gina on the story, and and you know briefly what did you discover, and why did the free press believe this was uh, an important issue to bring to light and to uncover? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for having me. So, we I hadn't written about these issues before juvenile justice, and so um, it really came about about another private facility. Uh, you know, we're talking about a county facility that that detains kids um, who uh, are charged with crimes, but but um, this first came up with us with a private facility uh, called Detroit Behavioral Institute, and that was shut down and um, uh, because of allegations, uh, a number of allegations against employees that were accused of abusing children at that, uh, at the, ki- the kids at the facility. But, you know, we, we wrote that first story once that facility was shut down, and it was clear that um, you know, after that, this is where a lot of kids, uh, once they were held, once their cases were adjudicated, uh, uh, once a judge, you know, sentenced, basically sentences the kids, uh, uh, were, were uh, often sent to be uh, treated and get counseling. And, and so it kind of highlighted this, uh, this uh, problem uh, that had existed, that there's, there's not enough treatment facilities, not enough beds for these kids who um, once, you know, once they get, 
encounter courts, you know, um, and, and uh, where do they go to um, get that treatment that the judge deems that they need and there's not enough facilities. So that kind of led us to asking questions about what, what was going on in Wayne County um, facility. And we had heard actually the first complaint we had heard from a parent was regarding medication that, that her daughter was in this facility um, for a, uh, a number of days and she was not getting her medication. This girl was 13, um, had bipolar um, uh, and had not gotten her medication for more than, I think it was close to 10 days um, in this facility. So we started asking questions then and then um, also uh, really also what, what um, brought attention to the problems was this, uh, some people have called a riot of, of the kids in the facility in May that, that, that about 18 of them broke out of their rooms and destroyed property. And that was first covered by uh, Channel 7 here in Detroit. And uh, we got a hold of the internal investigation into that incident and, and realized that even the internal investigator was for, for the county was mentioning how the kids had not been out of their rooms and that was what they cited why they why they um uh had broken out and why they were frustrated because they hadn't gotten showers they hadn't gotten rec time and that's kind of uh where we we knew it was extremely important story at, at that point you know um uh, because yeah they were describing essentially solitary confinement you know in these in these rooms for days so Yes, no, absolutely. And, and some of the troubles that you've already highlighted is what I think we're going to get into and talk about a little bit more today. But like you said, I mean, a lot of these young people were ordered by the courts to receive treatment and, and not able to do so, right? Is it the fundamental heart of this problem? And then the overstaffing or the understaffing? Yep. Mean and and uh, yeah, that's one of the most egregious points that, you know, at one point, in the summer, late summer, they had, I wanna say 140 kids there and over half had their cases were already adjudicated and they were waiting for placement. So they shouldn't even have been at the jail, you know, the juvenile jail. And it's not a facility that's designed to treat them. You know, um, we've gotten reports and we've reported this, um, that kids are, um, uh, you know, can't be leaving the room for therapy or school. You know, so they, they're, you know, the county acknowledges they're not getting treatment. So, and what they the, need. The help and support that they need, you're right. Yep. Um, all right, Dinah, let's shift to you. And, and you obviously bring a very important perspective to this as a parent um, of a son who's, who's been in the facility. Um, and I know you've, you've had some troubles and I know we've talked to you in the past and, and even before your son got into trouble, recognizing that the behaviors were, uh, were heading in that direction and, and an inability to get support or help for him frankly, until he had committed a crime or it got put into the system, um, which is another challenge as well. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about your experience and your son's experience uh, with this process. Well, um, first off, uh, treatment, that's a joke. There is no treatment. Um, the facility he's in right now, I wanna piggyback off of Christine. JDF is not from what I've been told from the probation officers and from the social workers that actually worked at JDF. It's not designed to hold kids at a maximum at the time. They're only supposed to be there, from what I've been told, maybe four weeks at the max, okay? My son was there seven months and everything Christine just told you, 
locked up in a room for weeks at a time, no showers, no rec time. Um, they had to eat in their rooms, um, flooding of sewage. I mean, the list goes on. It's ridiculous, but the problem starts and where it should be fixed at is when a parent goes down and requests help and you're, and you're telling them, I can't help you until your son becomes a part of the system. Well, that's what I'm trying to prevent. And I got pushed from here to there to there. No one wants to help me. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the problems are on both ends, right? We, we lack the services and supports on the prevention side to, to prevent some of these things from happening or starting. And then once, it, once crimes are committed or children are into the system, we don't have anywhere near the resources to do the rehabilitation work that the system should be built upon. It should be, should be focused on. Yeah, um, you're, you're exactly right. So, Rusty, what's your take on, first of all, kind of what happened in Wayne County? And then I know that, you know, that we've worked with with you and Jason and others. And, you know, there was a task force that developed recommended changes to the system. And and some of those are in the process now. And, and kind of what's your take on, on first what happened in, in Wayne County specifically and then kind of where we can go from here? Yeah, thanks. And thanks for letting me be a part of this. It's a really important topic. I just want to start by saying I'm sort of here on my own. We do represent Jason and the Michigan Center for Youth Justice, but these opinions are mine. Uh, and uh, sort of based on what I've seen in my time working on Raise the Age Youth Expungement, it's been about four years working on juvenile justice. I don't know that I can speak in a great deal of detail or um, expertise on what happened in Wayne County, other than to say, I think it is um, uh, representative of what is happening around the state. I don't think it's only a Wayne County issue, right? And so what I have seen uh, in my time, and you know, keep in mind, I uh, grew up in uh, you know a suburban neighborhood. Uh, I really was had never had any trouble, um, and never really understood what the justice system was. But as I've gotten into this, what I've learned is it's supposed to be rehabilitative, right? That's the goal. And what I've seen is as we've gone through this phase in the '90s and early 2000s about being tough on crime we've lost that vision of it being rehabilitative and it's just punishing, right? And that is um, hopefully what we're seeing in a pendulum shift away when we talk about criminal justice reform, that juvenile justice is meant to be rehabilitative. How do we help kids who have unfortunately gotten into the system to not return to the system, but even more than that, how do we help them with the skills that they need to be able to lead a successful life? And I think that's you know, the big problem because there are uh, resource needs there. But what I've seen is sort of what I determine or what I call justice by geography. What you get out of the juvenile justice system depends on where you live uh, and where a uh, where an offense or some in, um, incident may have happened. Uh, and that is something where you just don't have sort of a standardized system where folks know what to expect when they go into the juvenile justice system because you have 83 different examples of what that's going to look like, right? And I think what we've seen out of the juvenile justice task force uh, that the governor did that was bipartisan and came out with 32 recommendations, that is a theme that runs through that. And so how do we get a more standardized system so that there's both, um, you know, consistency uh, in what happens, uh, but also predictability on what's going to happen if you're in the system so that parents like Dinah and others you know, they can be told, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's how, here are the resources that are available. Here's how they can be helpful. 
And so I think we need to push lawmakers certainly towards those recommendations, but also towards the funding for the rehabilitative side and uh, the side after they're out. What what happens after they got a rehabilitation? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, and so without getting too deep into the weeds, but <clears throat> one of the fundamental problems is, is that it's kind of this blended funding model, right? Between the state and then the county. And that's where you get this big variation from county to county on what their resources are, what their capacities are, how many kids they have, uh, you know, into the system and, and other things. And so uh, what we often look at as advocates here and working with you and groups like, like uh, the Center for Youth Justice and others is what can we do to get more state resources into that system so that that helps benefit even if the counties don't have as many resources and the more state resources that you can get in. Um, well, yeah, you know, just help. as a, yeah, Matt, as an example, when we were working on Raise the Age, there was a fundamental agreement among almost everybody that Raise the Age was a good idea. And for your listeners, this was 17 year olds were still being charged as adults. We were one of only four states in the country that were still doing this. The, the, the wall that I kept running my head into was, well, Rusty, we don't know what the cost is because you have 83 different systems and we don't have any coordination about what the data is about what the cost would be. And the legislature, thankfully, guessed what the cost might be, put it into the budget, and we passed the reform with a two-year wait to start trying to implement it. And so that even that even something as analytical and unempathetic as data is an important piece of what happens here and what lawmakers need to look at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's jump back just for a minute, Christine. So I think Rusty highlighted the fact that, that this isn't a uniquely Wayne County problem. Obviously, the specific issues that you um, uncovered and, and were investigating was specific to that facility primarily yeah. and in Wayne County itself. But have you heard from folks in other places of the state or, or yeah. um, you know, around other issues that, that people see as well based on the reporting that you did? Yeah, we know it's a huge issue across uh, that there's not enough treatment facilities. They've got basically two, it's my understanding uh, uh, that they have two uh, what's deemed as secure facilities that are state run uh, right now. And those aren't even, as far as I knew last uh, few months ago, weren't operating at full capacity because of staffing issues. So there's, you know, there's uh, not enough places statewide to send kids. And I know Ingham County, I talked to those folks that's a it's a court-run facility they had said that they were um had kids languishing there as well um and um uh we do know it was a really rare move that the state um uh for both um JDF, which is the Wayne County Juvenile Detention Facility, and um, in Oakland County, Children's Village, they um, passed variances for both of those facilities where they that is basically allowing that those facilities because of their staffing problems to um, uh, out of certain rules uh, that governing how they run their operations uh, because the problem is so severe. And, you know, a state official described that as rare to us. Now, JDF has had its variance, uh, these rule variances extended multiple times now, and, and it is running till the end of the year now. Um, and like an example of that rule variance would be normally you're supposed to have uh, 10 staff to one, one uh, child or I'm sorry, one um, 
staff to 10 children, but now they're at one to 20. And so, um, and that's even during the daytime and, and employees have told us that's not even happening, that it's much more severe, um, uh, according to employees. But, um, so that, yeah, we know this is a problem. Children's village in Oakland County had the similar variances, although it didn't, doesn't seem as severe as, uh, uh, of a problem in Oakland County, uh, at least the last couple of months ago when we when we talked about that. But I mean, uh, Dinah can talk more about what that does to parents and kids to be languishing like that. But I can't I can't imagine, you know, having my child in a facility like that and have no idea when you know you'll have a you know you know what they're supposed to uh, do. Uh, from the judge, you know, in terms of treatment, but you have no idea when they'll be able to to start that. And it's time that doesn't even count in many cases. Their time at JDF is not even, um, it's just dead time. It doesn't count towards their treatment. So they're just sitting there. Because they're ordered for treatment for a period of time. No. Right. And, and we've talked to, I mean, the judges are frustrated by it too. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're, they're not seeing the results of what they expect to happen as well. And one more point, I mean, it was clear from your investigation as well that, that these variances that were granted by the state coincide directly with when the problems were happening yeah. in these facilities, right? Yeah, we've with interviewed, the, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, that's right. No. With oh, the, yeah. yeah, we've interviewed kids that, that have said that the problems began prior, but that May incident where it got the most attention, it kind of, uh, at least from the, the public's uh, view of, of how severe things were, it was really a, a buildup. You know, I talked to one of the kids who uh, was, uh, you know, kind of f- uh, fingered as the, as a kind of ringleader. Um, and, uh, he knew Dinah, he, that was a kind of a, a, side fact. He knew Dinah, uh, he knew Dinah's son and she was calling all the time. And he, he mentioned that to me specifically. So, but, um, yeah, he said that the kids, they were just so frustrated. What broke, what was hard to hear him describe was like, he would say that staff would promise to get them. We're going to get you out this next morning. You know, we're going to get you out the next morning and the next morning would come and, you know, it wouldn't happen for whatever reason, because somebody didn't show up or, you know, they were such a skeleton crew that they couldn't, couldn't get folks out. So it was just, uh, he described just psychologically um, so difficult to, you know, to deal with. So. All right. So Dinah, what do you want to see happen here? Not just for your son, but for the system as a whole, what can we, what should we be focusing on to, to uh, try to right some of these wrongs? Well, first off, if there, if the judge orders a treatment plan, that needs to actually happen. Uh, the facility my son is in right now, he's supposed to have therapy every single week. Well, it's not getting that. He's getting it every two weeks or when the therapist feels she's available to give each child in their therapy. I mean, they need to do their jobs. I understand it's understaffing. Nobody wants to work there from my understanding, from what I'm hearing from the staff members there. But nothing is being implemented. Like they, those kids are just basically thrown away. It, it, that's the best way I can put it. They're locked in their cells. And Christine is right. They're, they tell those kids that, oh, we're going to let you out tomorrow. And that doesn't happen. Like a child being caged like that, it does something to their minds. They're depressed. And why wouldn't they act out? I'm not making excuses for them. But for an example, if you put a, if you lock a dog down in a cage for a, a certain amount of time when you let that animal out, what does it do? It goes wild. 
and nothing's being done, you know, and they want to say, oh, that kid is bad. Well, what do you expect if you're not even going to give them the treatment that they deserve? They have no reform program. Like my son has graduated in, in the system. He's still going to high school. Why? They have no trade programs for these kids to go to after high school. No college programs for them to get into. Like my son is sitting there coloring. Yeah. Is this so frustrating? Whole, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sorry. Um, so, Rusty, I mentioned in the opening that the governor, I think in response or, or at least partially in response to the reporting that Christine did, um, announced the creation of this Michigan Juvenile Residential Facilities Advisory Committee. Do we know uh, what the timeline for that is? What's the process? Have they met? There, How's that going to work? Do we know? Yeah, it's a fair question, and I don't know that I have a lot of detail for you at this point. Um, uh, obviously, the election uh, was different than lots of people expected, and uh, there's a lot of uh, um, shocked people on both sides, I'll say it that way, uh, and sort of the transition uh, that goes into sort of a change in government like that. Uh, and so I don't know, I, I can't say specifically what has happened, but, but I did want to say, um, you know, one of the challenges that I think we have in reforming the system and getting to lawmakers, and obviously that's where I deal with, so that's my thought process, is it's, you know, the, the courage that, that Dinah has to speak up about this uh, is really hard because it, frankly, if you know, I have four children. Uh, there's there's a embarrassment factor there. There's uh, you know sort of that the stigma that comes along with that in terms of how this stuff happens and what happened and and all of that stuff. And so it's hard sometimes with lawmakers to put a face on this and to show them what the impact is and why it's so important. And so you know, I, I know you guys have a network out there. We need more parents who have children in the system who are willing to speak out and say, this is what the problem is, and this is the help that's kind of needed. So I just want to just applaud Dinah and the work that she's doing and, and really making that effort because, you know, we're working on fines and fees, for example. Uh, you know, you get, you get into a system, and then you get into a financial hole, and you can never climb out of it. I, I say this, and I don't say it flippantly. We've created a system where you're incentivized to go steal an iPhone pay for your court fees. Well, that's ridiculous, right? That's not how this should work. But trying to put a face on that can be difficult because now you're adding money into the situation, which can be even more sort of, you know, taboo to talk about. And so the more parents that are willing to speak up and talk about this, the more that we can harness that energy and bring it to the legislature. Absolutely. Go ahead. Can Christine. I follow up on that? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I And I wanted to say that too, that Dinah, I want you and your listeners to know kind of the peel back the the window of how we did this story. Without Dinah's help, a lot of this wouldn't have wouldn't have been exposed. Uh, she called us, um, and I don't know if you know, but there was an in, I think an unintended consequence for some of the reforms that were recently passed that um, you know that restricted public access to juveniles' files. That that includes us as reporters and the the kind of watchdogging that we're supposed to do. I don't have access to um, uh, those uh, those records anymore. So when I wanted to get an idea of who was at JDF and you know who was going th through this, 
this experience and what their record, you know, what was uh, what their experience with the court has been, I, I am operating blind. And that's extremely frustrating as a reporter. I understand the argument uh, of why those reforms were passed to protect those kids and, the, you know, um, and, and, um, uh, so that they can apply for jobs and not have these these past um, issues on um, affect them in the future. But I, I hope you and your listeners uh, um, think about this, that it has made it m extremely difficult to watchdog this system. And if you were talking about a system that is operating um, in, you know, Rusty mentioned, you know, uh, really disparate, you know, where counties, it depends on what county you're in. Uh, we need to be watchdogging that as reporters and we can't. And I really owe a huge debt to Dinah for call, for reaching out to the free press and uh, for, for doing what she did. I talked to many parents who would not be quoted in the paper. They would not um, appear in the paper, you know, um, in a photograph, things like this. So Dinah, um, I, I can't say enough, uh, uh, you know, uh, how appreciative I am to her that she was willing to talk with us and share this with us. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more as well. And, and like both you and Rusty said, I mean, this is, this is advocacy 101 for us, right? This is at the heart of what we do at Michigan's Children. And we're absolutely committed to giving Dinah and any other uh, parents or young people that have been involved in the system an opportunity and a platform to talk about these issues, because that's the only way we're going to really drive the change that we need. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what we do as an organization. Uh, we rely on, on the help and support of all folks that care about these things to make that happen. But we will be doing, and I'm sure with, with Rusty's folks uh, at the Center for Youth Justice and others, we'll be continuing to, to create venues and opportunities uh, for these stories to come to light and to get lawmakers. I mean, that's, that's how we make things work. Rusty knows this better than anybody. If you can get lawmakers listening to people tell real stories about the issues that are happening in their communities. That's how you drive change. And so we're going yeah, to if there's a way moving forward. Yeah. If there's a way that, uh, you know, as you guys look at this work, you know, that you can s support that public access in a way that you feel that, uh, you know, that we can compromise here and, and not um, hurt these kids futures, but also not, um, you know, uh, put a curtain on this whole system where it's, we can't, um, you know, we can't monitor what's happening, unfortunately. Yeah, transparency yeah. absolutely leads to better government. Yeah, I think you're right. It's challenging in situations like this, uh, maybe to, to figure out where that line is, uh, protection and transparency, but if we, we owe it all to, we owe it to ourselves and everybody else to figure that out. All right. Well, anything else anybody wants to add today here before we close this out? This was a great discussion. And thank you all for the work that you're doing on this issue. Yeah, I, you know, to Christine's point, uh, and that's a good one, right? Because as a lawmaker, you're trying to balance the, you know, sort of privacy of the child and the family. Uh, and there's a distinction between transparency in the system and transparency for the family, right? And so that you know, that that's a hard line, to sort of figure out how to go. And, and we've got to help guide them, I think, in a way that they can sort of balance that for the good of the person who's in the system, their family, and also that transparency. So that 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 is a hard balance. Yeah. Yeah. Just to clarify right now, I can, the public, we can attend uh, court hearings, so I'm able to do that, but I can't um, follow up in any written record or, or uh, 
you know, to, to check, to see who, who's uh, been going through the system, who's at JDF, things like that. So I can, I can, I have a small, we, we as reporters have a small window where we can be in these public hearings, but that's it. Got it. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all. We're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you, Diana, Christine, and Rusty. Uh, you've all given us a better understanding of the failings in the juvenile detention system and, and where we need to go to move ahead. We clearly have a lot to do to ensure that the system is, is therapeutic and rehabilitative uh, as it was intended and in the best interest of our youth, for sure. So to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Keep looking for us on your podcast streaming sites. And you can check out some of our other programs at, at michiganschildren.org. If you haven't yet, sign up for our e-bulletin, Speaking for Kids. And join us for our continuing Lunch and Learn series where we aim at, at building up the skills of everyday child advocates on issues like these and a lot of others. And if you have any other ideas for future programming or for a kid speak or family speak event in your area, please send us a message. You can find all of this information and more on the web at michiganschildren.org. Goodbye for now and have a happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's children with host Matt Gillard. Thanks for joining us. To explore these and other issues relevant to our state's children, youth, and families, and to build your advocacy muscle, go to our website at www.michiganschildren.org. You'll find links and news about past and future podcast topics under our resource tab and action alerts under the Take Action tab. Find and like us on Facebook and Twitter. Terry Bannis and Stephen Wallace produced this podcast. Contact them with your questions and ideas for other topics. Michigan's Children is a nonprofit advocacy organization, an independent voice working to reduce disparities in child outcomes from cradle to career through policy change.